and in this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, we'll be covering the long-awaited Dark Tower adaptation, Catherine Bigelow's attempt at depicting the Detroit riots in Detroit, and Halle Berry's Taken in Kidnap. Let's get started. No more. I do not shoot with my hand. I shoot with my mind. So, who has two thumbs and has never read the Dark Tower series? This guy. Yeah, I tried to read uh, The Gunslinger way back in, like, I think high school or college. Never finished it, though, so I never really got to know the lore behind it. I do know it's Stephen King's most, like, his own personal favorite story he's ever concocted. It's his Lord of the Rings, he calls it. Which I thought also applied to The Stand was his Lord of the Rings, but... Yeah, you know, but I can see why he loved, you know, he had such an endearment towards this because this is his universe, his universe. This is his creative universe where so many of his stories all tie into this one universe. And it's been anticipated and, high, you know, it's been pushed for an adaptation for years. And we finally got one with production by Ron Howard. And there's talk of doing like a TV series as well, but... Uh, the basic premise here is, um, with no relation to the book, since I don't know what the premise is for the books, but here you've got Jake Chambers, who is a kind of, you know, dorky kid who's, who is kind of, he's very emotionally unstable for the most part. Uh, he lost, he, they reveal that he lost his dad, who was a firefighter. Uh, he was, he died on the job. His stepdad's a a jerk, you know, par for the course for King. But, yeah, he gets picked on at school, and he's deemed to be kind of unstable, and um, uh, he eventually, you know, and he keeps having these recurring dreams of uh, a world, of this w different world, and a dark tower, and a man in black. The man in black, the man in black being played by Matthew McConaughey. And... It turned in now, and then it was revealed ultimately that he was right. He, his dreams were right; that he wasn't crazy, and that there are people who have like these weird skin things, but they're like rat-like underneath, or vampires, or something. Never really go into that, but um, there are these people with fake skin that he runs away from, and he eventually makes his way to this mystery world where he meets the where he meets the gunslinger, played by Idris Elba. And he tells Idris Elba what, that he's been having these dreams, and Elba uses the kid in order to enact revenge on the man in black, thinking that the kid will help him find the man in black and help him kill him, since, he's the last gun, since he is the last of the gunslingers. And over the, course they, you know, over the course of their journey, they eventually make their way back to New York, and it's like this weird reality tripping sort of thing where part of it takes place in this mid-world, this, this, this fantasy post-apocalyptic realm, and part of it takes place in present-day New York. And it's, and it's up to, and it's up, and thanks to Jake, 
uh, Edris Elba find, starts to rekindle the reason he became a gunslinger, the reason he is a gunslinger, and giving up his push for vengeance against the man in black. And I gotta say, for the most part, it's fine. It's good. I enjoyed myself. Um, I wouldn't say it's perfect. It's. I'm guessing there's a. I mean, there's so much that they've probably left out of this. It's only like 100 minutes or so, which feels short given the subject matter. You'd think there'd be way more, but I'm guessing this may be hoping to launch a franchise, maybe wanting to do more within this universe. But, you know, Idris Elba was a solid lead. He, he's able to carry a movie, no problem. Matthew McConaughey is the standout here because I don't think we've ever really seen villainous McConaughey. Like, he is straight up, kills people without a second thought kind of bad. And he's always, like... He he is the perfect encapsulation of the of a of the what we envision as the devil. You know, he's got all of this magic at his disposal. He's and he's always messing with people. He loves screwing with people like stop breathing. You know, and he loves tormenting people and he is hoping to utilize they call it the shine here instead of the shining. Um, which is something that King pulled from, you know, this is, which is something within the universe itself. The Shining is the psychic power that he references in other works, but it's it's a it's its own thing within this Dark Tower universe, apparently. And he's and McConaughey, who is not technically Randall Flagg from the Stand, but he is, you know, a, he is essentially the Man in Black kind of devil, evil antagonist character, and. He hopes to utilize kids who are strong in the shine to destroy the Dark Tower and unleash chaos and destruction on the entire universe. Because the way it's described is the Dark Tower is at the center of the known universe. And there's all these different universes connected to it. And if the Dark Tower falls, all the universe, all the known universes get enveloped in a chaotic darkness and you know and it's darkness and fire and it's it's like it's like hell and it's up it was up to the gunslingers to protect the dark tower but all that's left is Idris Elba's character and it's mainly I mean yeah Idris Elba and Matthew McConaughey carry this movie they're the reason it's any good at all because there's a lot it feels like there's a lot missing from this and it feels like they could have done a lot more but you know there's i will also say there's a criminal underutilization of jackie earl haley in this movie like he is he, i feel like if you have jackie earl haley you should use him more because he's jackie earl haley he's amazing but you know for the most part everybody does a decent job the kid's not a terrible actor and you, you know you kind of get i mean the problem with him is mainly in the writing in that he never he's kind of he's almost like the sexy lamp character where where a lot of female characters are written as just sexy lamp they play no part in the plot that's kind of this kid for the most part he's supposed to be our avatar to this world but he plays no real part in the plot for the most part aside from in being the entry point and then ultimately starting to use the shine ability in the third act 
but for the most part, he's just kind of along for the ride, and I feel like that's a that's a mistake that you should have given him more to do as a character and be more involved with the plot than just oh he had dreams so follow me kid you know so i mean as far as fantasy adaptations go you could do worse this is better than valerian this is better than the likes of like john carter or aragon this is good i would see more stuff in this universe but i can't say for sure it's the best adaptation of this material but i feel like people are ragging on it like it's like it's almost under it's almost it's under 20 percent on rotten tomatoes and the big thing is like it should have been an hbo miniseries that's the big thing on our movies uh circle jerk or circle broke i figure which it's either jerk or broke but the idea that oh it should have been an hbo miniseries yeah every yeah a lot of things could do better as an hbo miniseries but you know what some things can be fine as a movie and this was a decent movie you know I, I, I feel like we shouldn't hold things accountable for what could have been instead of and rag on what we got instead of that, you know? Then I'll get to that in the discussion. For the most part, The Dark Tower was a fine movie, you know? I feel like it's a, a nice entry point to the series. Like, if you watch this and then you started reading the books, you get you probably get way more into it, you know? And... I feel like that's kind of maybe their intention, that they want to get people into the series, so here's an entry point for them. Maybe that was the intention. I can't say for sure. But as far as adaptations go, you could do worse. Like, you could do way worse. Like, some people are, like... Like, I've heard some people compare this to, like, the last Airbender movie in... in, in, uh, in, in relation to it, the way it bastardizes its source material i can't say that for sure i will say this as far as movies go this makes way more sense than the last airbender did this is at least a coherent movie for the most part you know it may have gotten all the nuances and the characters and the universe from the books but at least it made sense in its own universe it made it you know it, it made sense in its own cohesive way it wasn't a a hot mess the way Shyamalan's Last Airbender was. Because that didn't make any sense if you didn't watch the series. But, yeah, the last... Mm. <laughs> yeah, never mind The Last Airbender. Nobody should watch that. Nobody should put themselves through that. But The Dark Tower? It's fine. You could do worse, you know? It's it's a fine little August movie. It's a nice way to kind of wind down the summer. I need you to survive the night. Melvin, you want to go home? Yeah. What happened at the motel? Oh boy, we got a toughie to talk about tonight. Um, yeah, Catherine Bigelow's Detroit. Um, I'm not sure where to start. I've been running through this through my head and how to start this after watching it. And I think I'm just going to start where I've been starting in my head. For these and that is to say there's um there's a trend there's a there's a new idea germinating in the um black film critics and film reviewers and film fans that i follow online i think uh Corey coleman has talked about this over on double toasted or maybe it was martin one of them 
Uh, but you know, there've been there's been talk of this kind of idea for a while now, and I think it goes back to the start of Oscar So White and to Twelve Years a Slave, and in in so much as that's the most recent example, and the idea is mainstream Hollywood needs to stop making people of color the victim. And what I'm saying is, mainstream Hollywood, when it wants to depict people of color on film, seems to have a seems to have a, a standard that they love to focus on, and that is, white people are the ones in, in in control, and the and the people of color are the ones who have to overcome their white suppressors. And that's why there's so many. You know, that's why there was the recent push of movies about slavery that's why you there's you know that's, that's why there's most of the civil rights era based movies always have to deal with the fact that the that the black people have to overcome you know race the systemic racism in front of them and and a lot of the people i follow who comment on this who have commented on this are kind of at the point where they're like look we get it. Yes, we we struggled. We've had to overcome a lot, but our media should do more than just remind people, "Hey, black people struggled." You know, black people went through so much. The struggle is still alive and well. Like, <laughs> I don't know where the like. I feel like these kinds of movies only serve to make white audiences feel better. To be like, oh, at least we aren't that bad. No. In a lot of cases, you're just as we are just as bad as what's going on right now. Like Ferguson has told us we haven't really evolved as a society. We are the systemic problems inherent during the 60s are still in place. So to act like, oh, look at them struggle. And look at them overcome the overcome the odds. And this is this one's even worse because. Nothing works out in the end. Nobody wins out in the end. It's ever it's an everybody loses scenario. So I mean, yeah, it you, you kind of get sick of seeing your people, your race, yourself being depicted by Hollywood as being the un being the forever underdog. When we've shown, when other filmmakers have shown, you can make perfectly good movies. Without having to be like, oh, but white people are still the man and you're still underneath them. They, you're still not equal. And I feel like that's why where this movie's problem is. I mean, uh, the, for, for those who don't know about the premise, it's, it's mainly about the Detroit riots and specifically the murders at the Algiers Motel. Where several police officers um, abused and murdered, you know, black men staying there under the guise of them thinking they were under fire. And most of it, most of it is dramatization based on testimony. And there isn't really a whole lot of information to back what, what's being depicted on screen. So it's all speculation, which, oh yeah, that's always great when your movie's mostly speculation. <laughs> but just i mean i think from i think i was on the i think i got 
a bad feeling from the first scene. The movie opens with a weird, like, I don't know if I want to call it crayon, or maybe it's like a cardboard cutout style, um, almost like a children's book style illustration depicting African Americans moving north from from the from the South during World War One to northern factory cities to find work. And then it just and then it just cuts straight to after World War II, the white soldiers returning from the war moved to the suburbs. And it, 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 like, it, like, brushed over all of the actual problems leading up to the Detroit riots, the, Watt, the, the Watts riots, the Harlem riots, the, you know, the Philadelphia riots, all of, all of that anger and frustration, none of it, all of the reasons for it have been brushed over. And the movie opens by depicting the, the first scenes of rioting and looting. The movie opens with black people rioting and looting after an arrest goes down of an underground, like, club. So, what am I supposed to take away from that? The fact that the movie opens with the stereotypical scenes of black people looting and rioting. And also commentary from news media at the time of white people saying, It's terrible how they're destroying their own neighborhood. They're such savages. And it's like... What are you trying to do? What kind of movie are you making? Where you're like, oh, all the reasons that they are upset and that they don't believe in the system? We're just gonna, okay, that's all preamble. We just try to get straight to the actual stuff, which is the, which is like almost straight up recreations of actual looting and rioting footage. Like, Yes, the yes to we don't want to forget that it happened. But you're omitting most of the context. There is context for why these things happened. And you're overcoming all of that. You're just blowing over all of that and starting out with just scenes of looting and rioting. That's that feels like ter that feels in terrible taste. That just feels such a terrible idea. Like, give us a, a year, a couple of years. Make the first scenes st start a boiling point. Make it like after an election where they hoped things would change and nothing has changed. Do so make, Give context to why they are writing because there was a reason for it. That's the, it's the same thing with like, oh, they're, they're just rioting in Los Angeles because they're hoodlums during the 90s. No, they were rioting in the 90s because of the same reason, because the system failed them and they decided to buck the system. Why, why should they support this, a system that ultimately oppresses them? But instead of providing that context to why these people are so angry and so willing to destroy to destroy their own neighborhoods, you would rather just continue the narrative of, oh, they're all angry and violent, and then cut to regular Detroit citizens just trying to get by in this war zone. I, I just... I don't know what the intention was with this movie. Like, I don't want to say she ha came in this with terrible intentions. 
I'm assuming she came into this wanting to depict the, you know, the plight of people of Detroit, of the black people of Detroit. She just had no idea. This is the same, uh, it's, uh, Catherine Bigelow and her writer from Zero Dark Thirty and The Hurt Locker. And I gotta say, Zero Dark Thirty didn't, you know, really hit me the way it hit a lot of people. It's like, oh my god, it's such a amazing... No, I, I, Zero Dark Thirty was boring for the most part. Like, it's almost... It felt like standard procedure for a lot of it. Like, the Hurt Locker had tension, and it, ha and it had something going for it. Zero Dark Thirty was a lot of nothing for the most part. It was a lot of talk, but not a lot of, like, actual tension and gravitas... Up until the final scenes where they storm Bin Laden's compound. Like, the most compelling scene in Zero Dark Thirty I can remember, aside from the compound fight, is the is the scene of them... Is the one scene of them torturing, of you know, somebody to, in, to interrogate them for information. And even that was, like, was nothing compared to other depictions of torture by the government. Like, 24 is more violent and, um, like, visually disturbing in terms of torture sequences than Zero Dark Thirty. Zero Dark Thirty was more subtle in that, but it, the fact that they even acknowledged it, and the problem is they didn't really acknowledge, they only acknowledged it once again in passing. It's like, oh, by the way, we torture people right then, We're going on to Bin Laden. It's like... And Zero Dark Thirty did not, it was not a well put together narrative in order to really grab people's attention about going, about, like, because that's the thing. I feel like the investigation, the investigation parts aren't really the most interest, unless there was something really interesting during the investigative process then the investigation isn't the interesting part of the story. It's usually, like, it's, real, it's, it's, only, it's only barely part of the Law & Order episode. There's way more interesting parts of the Law & Order episode besides the initial investigation. But, I mean, so, I mean, like, it's two, it's, it's mainly two hours of that first, of the first part of a Law & Order episode. At least that's what I remember. But, yeah, this, this just, this just felt like such a wrong way to tackle it. Like, I feel like the better way to have tackled the Detroit riots on film would to be, would to make a movie where the climax leads into the riots. And I get that they, that the, the movie, the movie is not so much about the riots themselves. It's mainly about the Algiers murders. In which case, yeah, um, once, like, we, yeah, we, like, I feel like, being reminded that there's a, a systemic racism within the police, within the police unions, and within the police, within the, the justice system, like we see that in the news currently. I don't think we need to re be reminded. Oh, by the way, it's always been here. Like, what was the, what was the? I feel like there, there wasn't really a real goal behind depicting this, this event. Like. Yes, this event was terrible and it was tragic. But other than to glean awards bait, like, why tell this story in this fashion? This feels like somebody trying to glean awards bait. 
This feels like it, one of those pushes for like, hey, hey, voters for whatever awards, for whatever for the whatever awards. Watch this. Isn't are, isn't this sad? Weren't we terrible? Like I feel like that was that was more the intention than in wanting to really tackle the issues behind the Detroit riots and the Algiers murders. Like the issues were never really tackled. It was just a reminder that yeah, the system is broken and is, has failed its citizens, and nothing really has changed. But I didn't need to sit through a, a two-hour movie to be reminded of that. I could watch the news, you know, for that for that reminder. But anyway, yeah, Detroit. Uh, misguided attempt at trying to tackle race relations, I guess. I don't know. Not as good, uh, not as good as I initially thought it would be, and problematic is the phrase I dropped in my initial review, and I think that's the right word to end on. Problematic. As long as my son is in that car, I will not stop. Wherever you go, I will be right behind you. You took the wrong kid. This one sure popped out of nowhere. Um, yeah, this is the latest from Halle Berry. Mainly because she's the only recognizable name behind it. Uh, she is also, you know, like, not only was she the star, she is the producer of the, she is one of the producers of the movie. So she was the one really pushing for this. And... These are the kind of ones, like, as hard as it was to talk about, you know, the issues in, in depicting race on film with stuff like Detroit, this one is almost harder to talk about. Not be because, at least with when you're talking about race relations, there's concrete stuff that you can refer to and that there's actual people you can defer to. Whereas when you're... Like, there's a, I forget who said it, but there's somebody I follow who was like, it's easy to talk about a good movie and a bad movie. Good movie you like, you talk about why you like it. Bad movie you don't like, and you talk about what doesn't work. The hardest stuff to talk about is the mediocre, the meh, the stuff where it's not good enough to really warn, like, that you don't, you don't hate it, but you don't like it. It's just middle of the road, bleh. And that's kind of this movie that i mean it's take it's a taken knockoff with halle berry as a mom who chases after the people who kidnapped her son and you know goes on go you know goes all out to go and protect his find and rescue her son and like it, it felt like a direct-to-video movie. It felt like something you would rent from the Redbox or would go directly to Netflix or something or, you know, grow, go for cheap on Amazon. Not something you would really... You know, you'd find it at, like, Family Video for those who still have it. It's not something you'd really think about. And yet somehow this got a wide release in theaters, even though the editing is cheap the production overall is cheap there's like hardly any cast to speak of 
Like, it's mainly Halle Berry and a bunch of people you've never heard of. And the story is just taken light, only without, you know, the idea that, he you know, he's a, you know, he's a, a trained killer. Now it's just a mom be going after killer, you know, going after kidnappers. Like, like, I feel like this might have worked. The setting might have worked. The idea might have worked. Just not the way they did it. Like, like for one thing, Halle Berry, I feel like, is the weak point of the movie. Because as good of an actress as she is, she's not someone who carries the movie. Like, she's a great actor when she's surrounded by other good actors. She's a great ensemble member. Like, I'm interested to see how she does in Kingsman the Golden Circle in the fall. Because she's a great actress, for the most part, when she's when she's surrounded by other good actors, when she's got other actors to work off of. But in stuff like in something like this, that lead actor needs to carry that movie. And a lot of actors just don't have the charisma. And it's not like Halle Berry is the only one. There are plenty of actors that have tried this. Where they try to be like the one to carry the movie. Nicholas Holt well, did this in did this almost exact same thing in Collide. And he could not carry that movie. You know, it's it's just not everybody can be Liam Neeson. And to try and make other actors play a Liam Neeson style cat character from Taken, it don't work, you know? It's not always going to work. And I feel like that's why this would have gone straight to DVD if not for Halle Berry putting the putting the pole behind it to get into the theaters. Like, I feel like nobody's really going to talk about this movie because nobody really knows about this movie and nobody really wants to see it. It's just kind of meh. Like, maybe you might like it if you discover it on Netflix in the later half of the year, but... You don't really gain anything from watching this. It's just kind of there. It exists. It's out in the ether, but it feels like something... It feels like the quality of a TV series. Like, I feel like one of those uh, CSI or... Um, what's the one where it's uh, the FBI, where it's... My mom loves that show. Um, let me pull it up. Joe Mantegna is the guy in it. Criminal Minds. Stuff like that. It feels like an it feels like an elongated episode of one of those shows, for the most part, in style, in production quality, in performance quality. Like, you know, Halle Berry is doing her best to try and be like a panicked mother, but when she's talking to herself, she just kind of sounds weird and off-putting, you know. And like she's putting her all into this performance, I can tell. But it's just not, there's just not a lot going for it. There's, the movie isn't up to the, perform, up to her caliber. The writing isn't, like the words she's saying aren't that interesting or good. It almost feels like they're ad lib for the most part. And well, it feels like a really cheap production. In, fa in fact, let me double check something. Let me see. Not listed on the numbers. What about on IMDb? Budget twenty one million. 
So yeah, lower a a, a more expensive lower end movie. Like it's it, it would be expensive for TV. That's what it feels like. It feels like it was expensive for TV. It feels like it was TV quality, and the and the budget probably most of it went to Halle Berry. I'm guessing. So yeah, I mean, like it's not it's it's not the worst thing ever, but I don't I I can't exactly tell people to go see it. It's not something you'd really glean anything from. And I think I remember looking up the guy, and I think this is like his first actual... Yeah, he's a producer, and this is his first real writing credit. Yeah, and then he's going to be doing X-Men The New Mutants pretty soon. So hopefully he does better on that. But yeah, this was just kind of meh. It, 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 it should not have gone to theaters. It should have just gone direct to video like the quality suggested should have salutations ladies and gentlemen it's the popcorn junkie here for a little netflix and chat all right real quick netflix and chat this week uh Basically, it's just a follow-up on Adam Ruins Everything. I was, I was, um, what's the term for it? I was, uh, giddy, all giddy about it, talking about it with, uh, my parents at dinner and recommending, oh, you should watch it, Adam does this, da 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 You know, I am, I am my own family's Adam Conover. <laughs> I think I've come to terms with that. But, uh, yeah, once again, I also, tur- it also turns out that it's Amazon that has it wrong that the first season of adam ruins everything ends with the going green episode and that it's supposed to be broken down from uh the first one giving to going green that's all one season and for some reason amazon broke it down into two seasons and they're technically only on season two of the actual show but for some reason amazon put it into it's weird. I'm just, I, it's not, that's that's just you know mislabeling on somebody's part, but um, the the stuff I watched w- went from Adam Ruins Weddings all the way up to the um, aforementioned Going Green, and then I started this new season on the True TV app, which is garbage. The True TV app is utter and complete garbage. Here's the thing. Most streaming services, if you're if they're ad based, will air three, four, maybe five ads. You know, standard. That's about standard. I think they don't usually push over five. Some only do one. Like Funimation, I know only does one uh, commercial really per episode break, or per um, yeah, per episode break for commercials. But. True TV had like seven or eight commercials per break. That's just unwatchable. Like, why why would you put people through that, you cheap pricks? Like, come on. At least you know, at least put them on Hulu or something so that people can pay not to have the ad space. And that's the thing. In order to access the streaming ability on those sites, you have to have a cable provider. 
So not only are you required to pay money for a cable provider, they make you sit through ads anyway. True TV, you cheap bastards. Anyway, um, I watched the first episode of the new season on that. I think I think I'm, I think I'm gonna find alternative means of it because I hate to not support Adam through official means, but when your official means are utter garbage and you make people suffer through it, then no. Why should other? Why should I have to put? Why should you? Why are you? Making the consumer look elsewhere when you should be providing a consumer-friendly experience. Anyway, um, Adam ruins everything. Basically, um, he covers stuff going from the, the fall of shopping malls and even something I wasn't very well aware of, which is um, in that shopping malls episode, Emily Axford um, breaks down why glasses... There's an entire Italian monopoly over the glasses industry. And how the only way around it is through stuff like um, uh, Warby Parker, I think I know is one. And there's a bunch of online services that are trying to circumvent the the system. But yeah, I mean the even the, the um, I forget what it's called. Um, let me pull up the episode. Oh, actually, better yet, um, Glasses Monopoly. Luxottica. Um, Luxottica is um, is the one that not only owns the rights to the glasses themselves and over overcharges for them, they also have bought out individual insurers. So there's insurance companies for your glasses and for your eyesight that is owned by Luxottica, as well as certain doctors, certain optometrists, that you use. So the optometrist that you use and the insurance that you use to pay for that optometrist and for those glasses, all that money goes to Luxottica. And it's okay because they're, they're, in, an, they're in another country, which is mind-boggling. But, um, you know, also talking about how you shouldn't feed feral cats and, um, pure, and, and it's a reiteration of the classic college humor uh, one he did where purebred dogs are genetic monsters. The the immigration one was interesting. It was um it was a Mexican American girl. Uh, let me pull up the actress's name and her grandmother. And it covered the fact that the border wall is an, is idiotic and won't solve the problem, and that you know mass deportations are terrible. Um, Isai Morales from um. What was the thing? Uh, La Bamba, NYPD Blue. Uh, he played, like, the Mexican Adam Conover, uh, Alfonso. Alfonso uh, ruins it. It was Alfonso f ruins everything, essentially. And um, Isai Morales was good in that episode. Um, Mimi Davila is the actress's name. Uh, she is on the Glade. She was on the Glades, South Beach, and something called the Spinoffs. Um... So she's young, up and coming sort of thing. But uh, basically, she was a you know a high school student who believed that who was under the impression that the other you know immigrants are there illegally and that they, the deportations are good and that the wall is good. And Adam has to come in and say, yeah, no, that's all bullcrap. And 
and talk about how all of the, our preconceived notions of immigration are wrong. And, you know, then it goes on to, like, housing, where um, they talk about rentals and own, the dangers of owning a house. The, you know, the misconceptions of the, dr- of the drugs and, how the, and why the drug war on drugs was a complete failure. The pr- which, led into, which then led into a prisons episode where it talked about the prison industrial complex. Broke down all the stuff about the Wild West. The fact it, it, it you know it, it you know it made sure that to remind people, remind the little hipsters out there that hey the internet is a good thing, <laughs> even but we still need to tackle the problems that we that have come with it. Um, I think my favorite overall for the first season, first the favorite episode is death. Adam ruins death is probably my favorite episode just for the meta writing. And the way, you know, the, the way it, and the writing of Adam's character. Followed by Adam, the Adam Ruins Christmas, Christmas special. Um, where Adam, like, basically any episode where Rhea Butcher shows up as uh, Adam's sister is a good episode. It's going to be a good episode. And I think the most touching and best written episodes are the Adam Ruins Christmas, Adam Ruins Death, and Adam Ruins Justice and Prisons episode as well as the going green the going green season finale was very it you know was very nice and touching and in a way that like reminds people hey don't buy an electric car if your current car works fine if you're in the market for a new car and your old car is a dud then maybe look into electric cars but remember your electric car is on the grid and may create more greenhouse gases than your gas guzzler you know that it's up. It's up. That and it reminds people that it's not an individual mandate to solve global warming. It has to be done systemically, and that's the big deal. And um, and also, it was also a nice reminder that uh, wasn't it nice when companies took back their old uh, bottles and stuff. Like Coca Cola used to be like the milk, and take back their bottles, recycle them, wash them out, reuse them. And then all of a sudden they wanted to be cheap cheap skates and then leave and have everybody leave their trash everywhere and then say, oh no, it's not our fault for making trash, it's your fault for leaving it everywhere. Uh yeah. Also turns out that crying Indian ad from the 70s was a propaganda by the by people like Coca-Cola, Pfizer, and uh Neiman Marcus. Neiman Marcus? who are the scissor? Philip Morris, cigarette people. Uh yeah. <laughs> It was, it's, yeah, so the crying Indian, not only was he not, not only was he Italian pretending to be Native American, he is also, the ad was also propaganda by corporations. Fun facts we learn with Adam. Um, But this season looks good. Uh, I still need to catch up. Like I said, the the, uh, giving birth and having a baby episode was really good, really well thought out. It's off to a good start, and it covers, you know, Breastfeeding versus formula. It also integrates uh, Kendra from the prison, who was introduced in prisons and was a prisoner, was then freed from prison by Rhea, by Rhea in Adam Ruins Justice, and is now seeming to be a full member of the cast. It's just she's she is now part of um, Emily's clique in the show, which is good. I like incorporating her. You know, it's a ni- it's a ni- it shows nice. It shows a nice sort of meta story behind the scenes when you're dealing with the characters Adam interacts with. Um, but yeah, I want to check out... I saw bits and pieces of Adam Ruins the Hospital 
Um, Adam Ruins Weight Loss, I want to watch the full thing of. I've only seen the bit about fatty foods. I saw the bit about alpha males from Adam Ruins Dating, the most recent episode. Ooh, the next one is going to be fine art. I'll have to show that to Vanessa. Uh, Vanessa Van Alstein, uh, our fine president, our fine El Presidente of Gumby Cat Networks, my co-host on Fan of the Podcast, and the host of Art I Swear. I bet she's going to love that episode. Um, yeah, it's coming out this week. Uh, so I'm going to have to find ways to keep up with the show that don't involve True TV screwing me over. Um, but yeah, it looks good. Uh, ruins what we learned. Oh, ooh, that's going to be a fun one. Um, in a couple of weeks, it's going to be what we learned in school. So yeah, Adam Ruins Everything is probably one of my favorite shows on TV right now. I did see a new one, uh, starring Yvette Nicole Brown from, uh, from, um, from Community. It's, uh, Yvette Nicole Brown, Leah Michelle's in it, and then Brandon Michael Hall, who is known for Search Party, Cecile on the Phone, and upcoming something called Monster Party. Um, so he's a new up-and-comer, it looks like, but, uh, the show is called The Mayor, and it's a struggling hip-hop artist runs for the mayor to promote his mixtape and wins. And uh, there was a they were playing it before uh, Kidnap, and I was like, I'm going to check that out. I'm going to check that out. That looks like fun. Yvette Nicole Brown is hilarious, is already hilarious in it, and Brandon Michael Hall looks like a nice, uh, looks like a, sounds, sounds like a great up-and-coming comedian. I really hope, you know, I hope this is a nice jumping-off point for him. Uh, so I'm going to check that show out when it comes out, but yeah, uh, Adam Ruins Everything. If you haven't watched it, go check it out. You know, your mileage may vary for that kind of, well, actually kind of, you know, debunking of stuff. But I feel like it's a, it's a more audience-friendly version of bull shrimp BS from um, Penn & Teller. Like, Penn & Teller did something similar where they were debunking commonly misheld conceptions but it was a lot more edgy and adult. And this is more, you know, traditional. Like, anybody can watch Adam Ruins Everything. And it's, you know, it's viewer-friendly. Whereas BS was more, you know, for adults. So, yeah. Uh, that's all that I have to say about that. And after the break, we'll get into our discussion of adaptations. You want to hear four badass women discuss and dissect modern and classic horror films? Join us at Beyond the Cabin in the Woods, a good ghoul's guide to horror. Oh! On Gummy Cat Network. Don't read the Latin. Do you know that in the world of the insane, you will find a kind of truth more terrifying?
animation is one of those things that has always kind of slipped by me. Like, I feel I may have missed uh, being John Malkovich too, but yeah, um, Charlie Kaufman's always been like one of those guys where it's like right up my wheelhouse with how kind of weird and off-putting he likes to go. Um, so yeah, this is about adaptations and mainly how I've gone from being a more rigid, you gotta do it by the book sort of idea of, ad of uh, adaptations to a more lenient, as long as your thing's good, let you know, then, then we can talk kind of idea of adaptation. And what finally kind of did me in was both Atomic Blonde, which I adore, and The Dark Tower, which I liked. And to hear like, oh, well, Dark Tower is nothing like the book, and Atomic Blonde is nowhere near like its source material. And I'm like, you know what? I, I can't care anymore. Like... Yeah, I used to be the guy who was like, I mean, and even earlier in this series, you heard me talk about, well, why can't you be more like the true source material for the person's life? Why do biopics always have to make stuff up? And I still have issues with biopics that make things up, but, you know, I feel like, I feel like I'm willing to be more lenient as long as, like, I feel like, like, I didn't hate Hidden Figures. Hidden Figures was good. Even though they did differentiate from reality, they they did try to play things certain things up, but I I feel like that never really detracted from like it detracted a little bit for me, but from the overall movie, it didn't detract anything. Like if you didn't know that going in, you wouldn't you know you it wouldn't have um, noticed. But yeah, I think I think the just I'm at the point now where. As long as you're adapt, you know, as long as you're trying to be faithful, or if you're not being faithful, at least try to do something worthwhile. Give me something I can enjoy. You know, like Atomic Blonde, I doubt it's faithful to the source material. In fact, from my what I've heard, it's not faithful to the source material. But I feel like that's almost to its benefit because it's allowed to be its own thing, and for legal reasons, it has to say it's based on this existing material. Either like for character reasons or for or because that's how it started out as an adaptation of this of this comic, but it it developed into its own thing. But the idea that you need to be one hundred percent faithful is starting to erode away from me and from my ideals. And I think the part like like it's for this reason that. I never got into Prisoner of Azkaban, the movie. Because whenever I watched Prisoner of Azkaban, all I would think was, well, that's not how they did it in the book. And in the book, And I feel like being that guy isn't going, doesn't, doesn't make for good film criticism. Ideally, you want to critique a film on its own merits, what it brings to the table. Because a film is its own beast. Film and television and printed media are all their own things, and they differ wildly. They get, there's there's some you know there's reasons why some things only work in certain media. And perfect example in high school. 
that this is we're going back into the history of the popcorn junkie here. Uh, this is popcorn junkie confessionals. Uh, back in high school, my two favorite books that I was obsessed with were Bambi: A Life in the Woods by Felix Salton, because Bambi is and forever shall remain my favorite movie, and I have no qualms admitting that to anybody because. It's a damn good movie, and I love everything about it. And I love the book even more, even though they're two wildly separate entities. My other favorite book? Watership Down by Richard Adams. I was really into the movie. I was trying to get into that TV series, even though it was kind of, even though it never got made its way over here to the States, aside from a couple of DVD sales. And <laughs> true story. In the early 2000s, I was in charge of and was a member of various fan warrens for the Watership Down fan community. A warren, for those who aren't familiar, was the terminology used for the den of the rabbits in Watership Down. So these were forums for fan role-playing of rabbits we would make up in the vein of Watership Down. I'm just going to leave that right on the table. Think of me what you will. But that's a thing I did. And yep, I would probably do it again if I had the chance. I don't even know where to go now for fantasy Watership Down role-playing. But I'm 100% down. In fact, I would be 100% down with running a tabletop adventure based on Watership Down where you're a... Where you're a uh, group of uh, where you're a warren of rabbits and you have to either make go on an adventure like they did in the book or maintain your warren and protect it from certain things and go on different quests i will be down with that because i love that universe and i love richard adams creation now then in high school to get back on topic i was die hard adamant about making direct adaptations of these two books. There's a problem though, and was the reason I stopped, I loosened up on wanting to adapt these books. The main way to make cinema work and to make film work is through light exposure. You need lighting for your production to work. You, people need to see the images on the screen, which means you need light to enter the camera lens. Most of Bambi takes place at night. Guess what there isn't a lot of at night? Light sources, especially in the complete wilderness. Not a lot of light sources in the wild at night. In fact, there's a specific scene in the book where Bambi is wide awake in the middle of the day and his mom tells him to go to sleep. Most of Bambi either takes place at evening, morning, or in the middle of the night. Do you know where most of the Watership Down book takes place? Under the freaking ground! Guess what? There's not a lot of underground. If you guess light sources, ding, 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 you win a cookie. Go get yourself a cookie. I can't pass it to you through the podcast. 
So, it, when I realized that there was no way to do a direct adaptation without conceding the fact that these locations would not have natural lighting, I kind of when I started to realize maybe a direct adaptation isn't a good idea. Here's the other thing. In Bambi, A Life in the Woods, there is a specific chapter. I believe it's twenty, somewhere between 26 and 29. That is a single page. And is dedicated to two... It may not be a single page, but it may be three pages. One to three pages. Entirely dedicated to two leaves falling. The last two leaves on a tree before autumn turns into winter. The entire chapter is dedicated to those two leaves having a dramatic death scene. And then it cuts right back. It is a full-on big-lipped alligator moment because it only happens the once and is never mentioned again. I was willing to cut that out because I had no idea how to adapt that into a live-action, realistic idea of Bambi. Do you know who included it in their adaptation? Yes. If you remember, the montage of the autumn going into winter, and just before the scene where Bambi wakes up and there's snow on the ground, there's a single scene of two leaves falling onto the ground as kind of melancholic music plays in the background. Disney found a way to include that chapter of the book into the movie, and I could not. So yeah, adaptation is hard. And that kind of brings me to why I use the theme from the movie adaptation as to this, because it's something I want to see because I feel like it's going to capture that sort of mentality of how difficult it is to be to re, to transfer a story from one medium to another. For those who don't know, adaptation was the follow-up of Charlie Kaufman and Spike Jones to being John Malkovich. This was just before Kaufman would go on to do um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. So th and this was a long time coming. True story. The impetus behind adaptation, as it is, was Charlie Kaufman being recruited and being assigned to adapt the book The Orchid Thief by uh, Susan Orlean, who in the movie is played by Meryl Streep. And the book deals with John LaRoque and a group of Seminole Indian, uh, Seminole natives from, uh, in Florida being arrested for, for, um, trying to clone the ghost orchid. And, uh, and the idea that they are stealing orchids. And so it was her trying, you know, her writing down, it was based on an article she wrote, I believe, for... Uh, what was it? For the New Yorker. And it was about, it was all, it was a non-fictional story uh, about Orleans 
uh, Orleans meeting John LaRoque and the Seminoles and learning more about this or this group of orchid thieves in Florida. The movie is about how Charlie Kaufman, as played by Nicolas Cage, had no idea how to adapt the orchid thief into a movie and could not do it. The actual Charlie Kaufman had no idea how to adapt the orchid thief and struggled with it for years and had a serious case of writing block. How do they deal with it? Turned the writing block into the movie. It is a meta movie. It is a meta film where the Charlie, where Charlie Kaufman writes a story about himself trying to write the Orchid Thief into a screenplay. It is so beautifully twisted and doesn't make any sense, and I want to see it. Like this should not make sense for a movie, but it's, again, it makes such perfect sense. I have no idea if uh, Donald Kaufman is real. Uh, I think he just made Donald up for the uh, for the purposes of the film. Uh, let me double check. Come on. Yeah. Okay. So Don, Don, So they did. He did take some liberties, and he made up a twin brother character for his movie to that kind of takes advantage. Of um, his own clout, you know, his brother's clout. Uh, yeah, fictional brother Donald, who's credited as writer of the film along with Kaufman. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. So, Charlie Kaufman made up his own brother and then credited his made up brother as co writer of the film. <laughs> I love stuff like this. See, that's what I think, what, and I think watching this would kind of give me more insight. It's just how hard it is to really adapt something, especially if it's not conducive to a film. Like, most books nowadays are written specifically to be adapted to a film. You know, not a lot of books nowadays are really dense narratively. Most books re today read like you would watch a movie. I think that's how much the movies have influenced our writing style, but also... That's, you know, most of those writers are looking to get their, you know, their book adapted to a film because in that, because by doing that, they can all, they can boost their sales. So I, I really, I, I really need to check that out. But I think, I think, yeah, that's why, that's why I'm only, I'm trying to um, real, you know, realize more that Adaptation is hard, and I shouldn't begrudge a movie for deviating in its adaptation. And the key to a film... Because that's the thing. Once again, any film critic and any film theorist and any film reviewer will tell you, film is its own language. And when you translate something from one language to another, literally speaking, if you translate... if you're tr Like, imagine you're trying to translate a book in English to a film. And by translating the the book is English, is like translating the language of English into something simple, German or French, you know, something similar enough to English. Even that translation is difficult. The translation from one language to another is always difficult, and with media, it's the same thing. Not things that work on page are going to work in a serialized form, like on TV, 
or in a you know in a narrative form in a three act narrative form like on film. Film has its narrative, and 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 you know film has its own style, as does TV, as does radio and audio, and you need to ha- and not every format is conducive from tra- to translate from one to the other. Some it's easy. Some it's some you there's enough correlation that it makes sense to translate from one to the other. But most stuff is especially stuff that works so well in one medium is not going to translate as well to the next. That's why not every TV show based on a movie or every movie based on a TV show or every play or musical based on a pre-existing thing all of these translations from one medium to another are going to be different. Some are going to improve on it because of the because of the capabilities of that next medium. Some are able to build on the pre-existing thing and make something new. Even when translating from one film to the next, the adaptation of telling the same story but in a different way is all subjective. You need you you need to have a means of translating what worked and what didn't and telling a story even though it is the same story you're a different narrator so you need to tell that story in a way that gets people's attention in the present to your current audience so you know i think it's and i have a and i have a buddy from college who was who was just like me and the idea that any kind of deviation from the from the source material was a slight against the film. And I feel like I've softened on that. I don't know how he feels. He may feel the same way. He may feel differently. But there's a way... it You know, not everything works well in direct adaptation. Another perfect example. Watchmen. Zack Snyder's Watchmen did its hardest to direct panels... The very panels from the comic on the screen. And yet, Watchmen does not work as well when trying to make a direct adaptation. Watchmen may have fared better if you took certain elements and changed them to make them more conducive to film. And he did. He did change some things. So the idea that he needs to pay strict adherence to it in certain areas, but not in others, is weird and part of why the movie doesn't work. You know, it doesn't work because he's, he's, he's like, diehard, panel directly to screen in some scenes, and then in others, he's willing to deviate wildly from the narrative. Which means he's not direct, he's not making a direct, ad, he's only making a partially direct adaptation. And the only way, and so... It ultimately fails as an adaptation because it doesn't really... Because even though it's trying to make direct correlation with the source material, it ultimately doesn't bring that source material to life in a way that, you know, his that, that any other... That other comic book adaptations have done, you know? Like, if you compare that to 300, 300 was... Was something 300? He sticked more towards the narrative of the comic, and it felt more like an adaptation of that source material. 
and that almost but that but at the same time that's why the movie doesn't hold up as much because time you know as more people look back on that source material they start to realize oh yeah Frank Millard's a bigot and a and a piece of garbage you know he's a misogynist prejudiced piece of trash and Zack Snyder is just a flashy you know uh Michael Bay wannabe. That's ultimately what happened. You know, it's ultimately... Like... Like, when you look back... Like, I look back on uh, 300 as brain candy. You know, it's one of those things where, like, guys are like, Yeah! Macho! Warrior! But it's so... But for trying to be so machismo, it is so homoerotic. And, it, like, it is probably one of the most homoerotic things I've ever seen. And that's the problem with hyper-masculinity. You go right into a homoeroticism. <laughs> And not to mention the fact that it completely bungles history. You know, Spartans weren't free. They owned sla- they owned their own slaves. In fact, Spartans were probably the most fascist of the ancient Greco, Gre- you know, ancient pre-Greece states. So to say, like, they're the heroes of this story. No, the Spartans were douchebags. <laughs> Any historian will tell you, yeah, no, the Spartans are a bunch of d-bag, d-bag fascist, you know, monsters. Of course, maybe not all would feel that way. You know, some might feel more sympathetic to the idea of the, you know, the whole murdering kids and eugenics idea of uh, government. But anyway, yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, yeah. I guess to, in, I guess in summary, just adaptation is never easy, and to assume that. You know, there's, you know, to assume that direct adaptation is the best option, you know, not always, it's that, that's not always going to work. Sometimes it's better to allow, allow the medium to tell things in its own way. You know, it, it's why, you know, especially if the source material isn't perfect, you know, not all source materials are perfect. So to adhere strictly to a source material, even if it's imperfections, that's why Stephen King doesn't work so well. I mean, think about it. A lot of Stephen King's stories end with some weird giant monster out of nowhere, like the spider from It, or um, you know the head, or like stuff like the hedge monsters from The Shining, or like the actual Tommy Knockers. You know, like some of that stuff, it doesn't really work in in when you visualize it. Sometimes, think the words are scarier and descriptions are scarier than trying to depict that in a in a three dimensional space. You know. Stephen, that's why Stephen King is so notorious when it comes to having his work being written in certain ways. Like he didn't, he didn't like Kubrick's The Shining because it was unfaithful. But at the same time, when he tried to make his own version that was more faithful, it didn't really capture the terror and the horror that the, the of the of that setting the way that Kubrick was able to. Maybe because Kubrick's a psychopath. But yeah, I mean. I think it's just good to remember adaptations are never easy and that you should really ultimately it's kind of best to judge the film in a vacuum. You can compare it to the source material. Be my guest. Absolutely compare it to the source material. Use them as comparisons all, all you want. Just remember they're just two sep- they are two separate entities. Some things are going to work. Some things aren't. Translation is hard. Transition is hard in any language. So in the language of the media, of course it's going to be difficult.
And I think that's about it for the discussion portion, so let's get into the trailer talk. Uh, this week we're going to have three trailers. August is... August actually has movies in it, you guys. Um, uh, I'm trying to think if there's any other housekeeping I need. I think that's about it. So yeah, let's get into the trailer talk. Uh, first up, we can finally get it out of the way. Annabelle Creation. So let's check out the latest trailer for that. It was quiet for all these years. After Samuel and I lost our daughter. Miranda Otto is the Phantom of the Opera? See our girl again. <laughs> Seriously, what's with that half domino mask? Is she going to start singing music of the night? Also, apparently, this girl has polio. Sister, you always say that even though we can't see God, we can feel his presence. In this house, I feel a different kind of presence. An evil one is coming after me. Because I'm the weakest. Will you help me? Are you okay? For producer James Wan. Janus found this doll. And the director of Light Air. She mustn't go near that doll. Can walk. Forgive me, sister. Forever, that's the same. Nothing can prepare you. For the next chapter. In the Conjuring Universe! You threw the thing in the well. Why would you then lean over it, you dunce? Anyway, yeah. I am... I think, like, I hear Brad over at um, the Cinema Snob, uh, Brad Jones, talk about this. And he's like, this looks like fun, like uh, Ouija 2. And, like, Ouija 2 was better than the first Ouija. I'll give him that. But just... Nothing about... Like, I haven't really liked anything about this Conjuring universe. I haven't liked the first Conjuring. The Conjuring 2 was just garbage and ludicrous. And Annabelle was direct-to-video grade schlock. So, I mean, like, good, good, like, I get the... I get the idea that, oh, because it's now a period piece and they're trying to do the horror in a period time. Okay, yeah, maybe. But, no, just... Mm, nah, nah, it's still not working for me, man. Well, next we're going to continue on our uh, awards bait 
streak, I guess? We had Detroit this week, and next up, we've got the Glass Castle. Rich city folk live in fancy apartments. But their air is so polluted, they can't even see the stars. We'd have to be out of our minds to trade places with any of them. Dr. Taylor said we should go to real school. A real school, huh? This is as real as it gets, kids. You learn from living. Pack yourself a toothbrush. Based on the true story. Pack yourself a favorite flower. You gonna tell him about us? We shouldn't be ashamed of us just because we choose a different lifestyle than you. Why did you lose your sense of adventure? If the sun knows. I'm the acclaimed director of something. The kids are tired of moving to a new town every time you lose a job. You know, all this running around is only temporary. We just need perfect location, then we can get to work on our castle. Have any running water or electricity. Ignore her. She was born without vision. This summer. My parents are squatting in an abandoned building on the Lower East Side. Do you honestly tell me that you're happy right now? Yes, I am. For the best thing memoir by Jeanette Walls. We ain't like other people. We got a fire burning in our so bellies. You were born to change the world, not just add to the noise. Why do you think all of us ran away from you? We were drowning. I would never let anything bad happen to you. But I can't let you cling to the side your whole life just because you're scared. It was your job to protect us. You have a right to be angry. I know you love him. You'll regret it if you don't come home. Academy Award winner Brie Larson. Nominee Woody Harrelson. Nominee Naomi Watts. You ain't like me. I am like you, and I'm glad. The Glass Castle. The Glassle. Um, yeah, I'm I'm confused as to why it's coming out this early. Like, I'm wondering, is the awards season push gonna go back to um? August now instead of just September because yeah I'm surprised to see stuff like Detroit and this stuff that would be ripe for award season being pushed out in the middle of August for some reason it's odd but um yeah it's yeah I'm interested to see how this turns out and although once again like Detroit maybe it just means that the movie isn't exactly as good as we would think it is I mean um, it does, like, it, once again, it feels, it definitely feels like something garnered towards the voters at whatever awards ceremonies there are, you know, with, um, you know, the hippy-dippy style parroting and the girl having to come to terms with going back to this corporate culture and then realizing, you know, how far she's gone away from home and how much she misses her family, like... Maybe it's not as good. Like, if it's coming out now, maybe there's a reason for that, you know? But, um, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, I mean, it's a decent cast, so it won't, it, it shouldn't be boring, hopefully. But, once again, we'll have to wait and see. And then, finally, The Nut Job 2. Nutty by Nature. 
okay. Come on, buddy. This is gonna be a stealth mission. Don't tell me you're scared. There's nothing safer than a dark alley. Ah! Just a lovable little dolly. Okay, that's a little creepy. Dead This is bad. It's been nice knowing you, buddy. You scared us. Get it? Because it's played by Jackie Chan, so there's the Asian noise, Asian instruments in the background. Mr. Fang, I was cursed with these big, adorable eyes and this fuzzy little body. Why are you here? I need your help to take back the park. This park has everything we need. Yeah! But the mayor wants to destroy everything. I got bigger plans and trees. An amusement park! They're gonna destroy the park. <gasps> That's not good. Don't you see? We're all animals, and we need to look out for each other. We are in this together. <laughs> Kung Fu Mice! Wanna stop the mayor and his goons? It's squirrel season. It's gonna take everyone. What should we do? Try to not get killed. I'll try. But I can't make any promises. Oh, that voice is annoying. Tiny, but together we're giants. Roll over. I said roll over! What are you doing? Roll over. I don't know how I'm not classically trained. We learned it! Special appearance by Jackie Chan and Katherine Heigl. Mangy little rodents think they can stop me. This is gonna be fun. New friend, Mr. Fang. But he's so cute. That reminds me. Don't call him cute. God, the dubbing on this trailer is the worst. It is, it is abysmal. It is unlistenable. So, apparently, this thing got a million, hundred million dollars at the box office. Just, just domestically, I believe. Here, let me double check. Ah, uh, the franchise. Okay, coming. No, no, franchise doing that job. Production budget thirty thousand. Domestic opening weekend nineteen thousand. Domestic box office sixty four. Worldwide box office one hundred twenty two thousand. So total, it made a hundred and eighty six thousand. A hundred eighty six million dollars. Off a thirty million dollar budget, which double that is sixty. So it, it like, it like, it it managed to like triple. It's it 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 it's it, it's budget and if you include the if you include um, advertising, just why, why why are people seeing this? And once again, I swear to God, it's something to do when you send it out in the foreign box office. They're getting a better movie than we are, I swear. Because we're getting garbage over here. 
I really hope this flops and we... Also... Really? Nutty by nature? Nutty by nature. You do realize naughty by nature is not something intended for families and children. Why are you making reference to some to a band whose number one hit is sure for other people's pussy? Naughty by nature should not be referenced by anybody intended for children. What is wrong with you monsters? <sighs> Apparently we need something to make the emoji look emoji movie look good by comparison. <sighs> really not looking forward to this one. Anyway, that about does it for this week. Uh, so, with all that out of the way, it's time for the plugs. If you're listening to those podcasts, you're most likely listening to us on our homepage at GumbyCatNetworks.com. And if you want to keep up to date on all the new episodes as they come out, be sure to follow us on GumbyCatNetworks.com. That's G-U-M-B-I-E-N-E-T-W-O-R-K-S.com. Uh, in fact, let me double check. It's not, it's networks plural, not network. Yep, networks plural. And be sure to check out other, our, all, you know, all the other fine programming on our network. Uh, like I mentioned before, fan of the podcast and Art I Swear. Uh, I do a Dungeons and Dragons podcast called Tragic Missile. Uh, we're going through the Minds of Phandalin, uh, Mantle, uh, the Lost Minds of Phandalin, uh campaign right now. But we're going to start moving on to homebrew stuff pretty soon. Uh, we've got we've got a second Dungeons and Dragons podcast on there uh, called Drunken Dr Drunken. Uh, what is it? Drunken. Dungeons of Dragon, Drunken Dragons. Let me pull up the Drunken Dragons, uh, where the DM is sober, but the all the players are drunk. Uh, so you've got that. You've got um, Ultimate Showdown, which is a battle to the death tournament style thing. Uh, Beyond the Cabin in the Woods about horror. Uh, what's What's more with feeling about Buffy? We've got. Uh, I, you know, the new podcast I started with uh, my Palace of Game Kiwi, Maji Day, Nightmare Zone, More Horror, Random Podcast Generator by by uh, Jim Hansen, uh, where it's a which like a pilot program for podcasts uh, focused on fantasy romance. Uh, all of this is all available to you at GumbyCatNetworks.com, and be sure to check us out on your various um, other applications: iTunes, Google Play. Over, I use Overcast, other people use Downcast, maybe Podcatcher. Check us out, you know, look for us. And if you look for me, look for My Orange Bug, chopping on popcorn, staring at the movies. And look for that Gumby Cat logo, which is a G with ears and a tail down at the bottom. And if you see that, you're going to receive our most up-to-date feed. I will still be using the SoundCloud feed as a, um, as a archive of sorts until you know as long as soundcloud is available that archive will be there uh otherwise i'll move to another site to archive but you know all of the you know so all the both all the episodes are available at both gumby cat networks or the soundcloud feed which is just soundcloud.com slash popcorn dash junkie and uh if you want to Talk to talk to the podcast and interact with it. You can do so via social media. Social media home is facebook.com slash popcorn junkie. And there were, that is mostly safe for the big time announcements where I talk about 
uh, you know, new when I'm seeing a new movie, when new episodes come out, when um, you know, when there's major changes to the podcast. And then, uh, if you want to get more personal, I'm over on Twitter at Corn Junkie Pod, and there I do, you know, there's where I do the trailer talk, and in some cases the munch along, where I, you know, comment on a movie as I'm watching it, and. It's there that I also interact with more reviewers and critics and other people. So if you want to talk to me over there, that's at CornTuckyPod on Twitter. Or if there's anything else you want to comment on, any kind of feedback you want to give, any kind of messages you want me to relay, send all that to popcornjunkie at uh, popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. And I'll be sure to either read it out on the, on the mic if you want or get back to you in a timely fashion. Uh, that about does it for this week. Until next time, I'm John Bailey. And it feels so good to have a C. That was an All Dogs Go to Heaven 2 reference for those who missed it. The theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by the letter M on SoundCloud for more of their music. Artwork provided by Nafio, N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nafio.deviantart.com for more of his artwork. Even they would go on to conquer Athens at certain points. And the Athenians would team up with the Persians. I believe that's how it went. Don't quote me on that. I'm not a historian. Um, Let me double check. Uh, Great old Persian Wars. Didn't the Persians team up with the Athenians to... Attack the Spartans? Yeah, hold on, let me cut all this out. This is uh, completely unnecessary.